Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome to Writer's Routine, the show that takes you inside the working day of one of the most successful authors. Uh, this week we're chatting to the best-selling crime writer, Stuart McBride. He's just published his Logan McRae novel. Uh, it's called All That's Dead. It's all about Logan coming back to work after a year away and suddenly is thrown back into crime at the deepest, darkest end. Now, we talk about how Stuart never really ever ever has breaks i mean he's almost worked 365 days a year uh, for the, like the last 20 years also we'll have a chat about how music really helps him tell stories and we'll find out how recently he completely changed the way that he writes a couple of books ago i decided it might be fun to try writing screenplays to start with um, just just to change my process because i'd been doing the same process for years and years and years so I did, uh, the first one like that was Now We Are Dead and I did it as six one hour episodes and I was very very strict about it being one hour per episode and it was all pro- you know, in, in final draft it was all done so proper dialogue type, proper formatting, proper camera, you know if there was a montage shot that it would be montaged da, 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 da. and then having done the six episodes I went back and adapted it into a novel. So stay there, there's loads more of that. It's a really process-filled episode this week. I think you'll love it. It's writer's routine. Yes, hello, welcome along. My name's Dan, thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining us if this is your first time. Welcome to our writing community we've got going on here. This is Writer's Routine, uh, the show that takes you inside the schedule of some of the most successful authors around particularly uh, a massive hello if you're listening to this either on the way up or the way down from Harrogate Crime Festival. And when I mean the way down, I'm talking about the massive come down hangover that I'm sure you're going to have. I know things about Harrogate Crime Festival and most of those things involve murder stories and loads and loads of gin. So if you're listening to this maybe on the train home, thank you so much for giving us your time. I hope it was a great festival. Uh, now this week we are chatting to Stuart McBride. He's the best-selling crime author. He's written 18 novels, a few standalones, three in the Old Castle series, and now 13 in the Logan McRae books. Uh, when I joined him, uh, Stuart, it was publication day for his brand new book, All That's Dead. Uh, and there was some Prosecco flowing around. 
I think I arrived at just the right time. Literally, we were just sat down. I was handing the microphone, just going through the whys and wherefores of the show um, when people came running in, hands full of glasses, full to the brim of Prosecco for us to drink. So if the chat starts getting a bit free-flowing and lucid, I guess I'd describe it lightly towards the end. I think that explains why. Uh, we It was really funny. We also talked about... Um, how publication drinks have got slightly less glamorous as the years have gone on for Stuart. I mean, back in the day, 20 years ago, when he was publishing books, he might have got, you know, a bottle of Bollinger, maybe some Moe, but that day we were on the M&S Prosecco and maybe some Carver. It's just a story that really tickled me. He then went on to say um, he's sure that when George R.R. R. Martin finally releases the next few Game of Thrones, when they those those drafts finally get handed in, uh, that, that George will get probably a full vineyard, let alone a couple of bottles. Uh, also, Stuart is from way up in Scotland, and I just love the fact there's such a Scottish crime-writing tradition. You know, Ian Rankin, Val McDermid, uh, and loads of them have actually been on this show. Uh, Anne Cleves, she's another one. I've not chatted to her yet. Maybe I'll send an email as soon as we're done. Um, now, we talk about Stuart's early work, his view on how good that all really was and why maybe some of those stories are best left in the top drawer never to see the light of day. We also talk about language, about plotting, about all the usual stuff. As I said, it's a proper process-filled episode. Uh, he's got some incredible views about why he needs to change the way that he writes at certain points of his story. And you can find out loads more about that as we crack into it with Stuart McBride. And we start, as always, with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. It depends what the weather is like. If it's sunny, all I see are the back of the blinds. If it's dreich and rainy and uh, drizzling, then the blinds can go up and I see the fields at the front of the house. So that's the reverse of what I'd imagine most people were expecting. You know, Why are you closing it down? Why are you locking yourself away from, from the sun? The room that I have to work in and have done for the last seven years is actually quite narrow and it's at the front of the house and it faces south. So if the blinds are up and it's sunny, I can't see to write. So, so, so aside from from the window where you've got God's own green country outside. Well, it's not God; that's mine. I paid for that. <laughs> um, talk to me about the rest of the room. Then, uh, have you got any inspir- any inspiration on the walls? Maybe art? Have you got books lining shelves around where you work? Um, I have shelves uh, to one side and to the back of me, and an old filing cabinet, which I rescued from a skip uh, that I painted with hammerite. Uh, a proper desk. Uh, from a, a stationary company and a proper ergonomic chair and one of these sit-stand things on top of it. Uh, ergonomic keyboard. Uh, I just got myself a penguin mouse, which is one of the vertical ones, because um, obviously you know, spending an awful lot of time getting cramp. Uh, a Wacom tablet as well, one of the large A3 ones, um, and a large collection of business cards and pens. If I were to walk into your room on a, on a, on a day when you are writing, when you're in the midst of storytelling... Would I see any clues as to the story that you are telling around around the rooms? Maybe post-it notes flung up. Have you got a big whiteboard where you score your notes on? Well, I do have a, I do have a whiteboard, and again, that it came from a skip. Um, there was a, a an oil company, a service company in Aberdeen, who were clearing out their offices near a friend's house, and I was walking past and saw this beautiful whiteboard just sitting there, and I asked the guy, "Well, are you just can I? Is, can I 
yeah, help yourself, mate. So I did. And that's my whiteboard. And it has been for... Oh, God. It's got to be going on 17, 18 years now. It's it's the same. I've never been tempted to, to replace it. And all the way around the outside, uh, it is bordered in post-it notes with ideas and little phrases that I want to use and possible titles for books. Well, I've, I've spoken to some authors recently who have made themselves mood boards when they start writing. Now, I don't want to stereotype this, but I, I don't think you're a mood board chap. Are, are you implying there's a certain degree of onanism involved in that kind of activity? <laughs> that, that seems, that's, that's the sort of the impression that I'm getting from you. I think it's a, gen, a, a, a genre kind of thing, oh, I, 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 I would imagine. But I don't know, you're a hard and fast crime writer. I'm, I'm not sure... I don't know about fast. That, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, that, how much mood boards play a part in what, in, in what you do. But do you have any inspiration around the walls, anything that maybe just keeps the, togs, the cogs turning? Not really, no. No, I, I'm, I'm, I will scroll things on the whiteboard and erase them and scroll them and erase them. And I, I mind map a lot. So that's that's one of the locations for it. But there's nothing really, no inspirational quotes or anything. Talk me through the mind mapping then. I've longed to speak to an author that does this and very few in my experience do. How does it work? So is this if you've got an idea for a plot, you'll be scrolling, brainstorming? Well, yeah, um, I use it very much like word association. So stick what the main point is in the middle of the board, draw a box around that, draw a line off it for the first thing that comes to mind. And if that sparks something, draw a line off that. And if that sparks something, draw a line off that. And then maybe go back a couple of levels, depending. So it's all about just just letting things fall out as they come, rather than sitting going, well, this will happen, then this happens, and then this happens, and logically that means that this should happen next. It's a case of, you know, okay, we'll have murder in the middle. Well, what kind of murder is it? Well, any person would commit that. Well, how, how old do they be? What, male or female? Like, oh, that makes me think of this. That's going to go down there. And then this changes, and that changes. Uh, and then once I've filled the entire whiteboard, I will stand and look at it for about five minutes and then erase the whole thing and then start again from scratch. Because if it sticks in my mind, then it's memorable enough to write about. And if it doesn't, then it's ephemeral and it can just go off to the ether. So that's almost like a test that you've developed. If you remember it, then it doesn't matter if it's rubbed out because it will stick in your brain. Well, yeah, but also I might not still be in that mind space in two, three months' time. So if it doesn't go back up on the board, I could have just forgotten it by attrition rather than because it wasn't a good thing to have. This mind mapping technique, has it always been with you throughout your 18 novels? Is it something that you've developed recently? No, even before I became a proper writer. And I was just doing it for fun and a hobby. Uh, I, I would still do it. Um, uh, a sheet of A3, for example, is is the perfect size for a short story or a novella. A big whiteboard is a novel. Uh, a sheet of A4 is, again, a short story or a character. Um, I do it quite a lot for for developing characters. Just what, okay, well, if the person is like this, well, what that mean? And this sparks things in my head. And I just write them down on the various branches. Well, every day I'm pretty much sat down to write and have been for the last 16, 16 and a half years. Um, it involves a small traffic jam with a cat, usually, or two on the way. Um, breakfast first, then straight down to it. Uh, usually read over about the last 10 pages of the, the day before, if I've managed to write 10 pages the day before. Um, I, I do an awful lot of deleting. Uh, and then start from that point and move forward. And just keep going and cycling back and forth over what I'm doing and what I've done and jumping 
in and out and polishing and changing and refining and this sentence doesn't work, maybe that word should be different, maybe this would make it better, invert that sentence, change that round, keep going, keep going and going, and that process keeps on until we get to round about seven, half seven, and then I stop and, and make dinner. So that's a tie, I, I would imagine, what, ten, 10 hours of writing? Most of which is deleting. <laughs> 10 hours of deleting. Um, in that time, how many words do you, would you hope to get done? I would hope to finish the day with 1,500. 1,500 words that I'm happy with. Now, it might have taken me 3,000 words to get to that point. What's interesting is that many writers have used the words vomit draft in the show in that it can be any 1,500 words. They're just getting the words down. They'll come back to that in the edit later. But that sounds like it's not the case for you. You no. want to make sure that they are the perfect words. Why is that? Or as, well, as good as possible. Um, it's partly um, the way things turned out with HarperCollins. Um, they had a book of mine uh, on submission from my agent and it had been sitting here for quite a while. And in the meantime, I had written two more books. And when my book had made it to the top of the pile and they'd read it and they thought, oh, we, we quite like this. And they got back to in touch with my agent and said, has he written anything else? And I had just finished the first draft of Cold Granite. And so Phil warned them that, you know, this is, it, it, it's the first draft. So it, but that went into them and they liked it and they bought it. And uh, then we, we did the editing process from that point. So ever since then, it's my first draft that I actually submit to my publisher. I feel I have to polish as I go. That raises an interesting question in, in, in the editing of it. If you've written three books without having them been glanced over by a quote-unquote publication expert, how do you know what you're doing right, what you were doing wrong at the time? How, do, how have you found that the way that you've told your story has changed after those three books when they have been when you've worked on them with editors? Um, well, it, to be honest, it was, um, Cold Granite was my fifth book. Uh, my first one was awful. Truly, truly, I was so happy to have finished a book and I was so proud to have done a book and I really, really enjoyed writing it. Um, and I am, I am so glad that you couldn't do what you can do now and just send it straight off to, to Kindle to self-publish. I am so, so glad, because I would have done it. I would have sent it out. And it would have been out there. And it's, it's awful. It's a truly, truly dreadful book. The thing is, almost everybody's first book is. Because you know, these are the books that we learn on. This is, this is where we hone our... You know, we, we cut our, our teeth on that very first book. You don't pick up a cello on the first lesson and think, right, straight into Brahms. You, know, you, you, you practice and you learn. And that's what those books are. Th these are the books that... that and there shouldn't be this huge pressure that your first book is going to be this, this big thing that's going to get published... Enjoy the process, learn, and then write something better because you have learned on that book. And then write something better after that. How did you realise that it was awful? Who told you that? I did. What was so bad about it? Um, it's, it's a lot of fun, but the structure's terrible and the, the pacing is, is just completely wrong and the use of language is not great and it's just not very well written. And I'd been a voracious reader for all my life. This is where I think that there's a bit of a lie um, that a lot of people get told. Is that you, you, you must read, read, read is the most important thing you can do as a writer. It is very important, but of equal importance is write, write, write. Because there is only so much you can pick up by osmosis. At some point you have to put words on the page and then look back at those words and think, I could do this better. Were you learning about this whilst you were editing your later books 
um, with 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 the people here at your publishers? W- were you getting tips and tricks from them that then allowed you to look p- perhaps more critically at your earlier work? Um, well, I'd been very critical of everything after that first book, so I was I was very much into self editing um, when I was writing the second book, which was a, a very different book to the first. It was much more. Um, much better structure to it, uh, an actual idea of where things were going rather than, oh, I know it would be great fun, let's have this happen next. Um, so it was it was a much more structured approach for the second book and much, much more structured for the third one. Let me take you back to the day, if, if I may. You said that on a good day you're working for 10 hours. A small break for lunch. Talk to me about those 10 hours then when you're not breaking for lunch. How do they tend to work in your your bursts of energy and concentration? I mean, it would be fairly hard for you to be sat there for nine, ten hours, focused the whole time, mm-hmm. most yeah. energy peaks yeah. and troughs, it ebbs and flows. Uh, how does yours tend to go? And also, what do you do to give you that energy when you can feel it drifting off? Well, I, I don't like... To just stick a bit of a note. I don't like like a note in the, the book that says, find out about such and such. If I'm writing it, I want to know what it is. Because apart from anything else, if I don't know something and I'm writing a scene, then it's entirely possible that that information will change what I write after it. Um, so if I don't know what it is, I can either go away and find out now, which is a, a break from, from sticking words on the paper, and then I can come back and write knowing where I go from here, or I can stick in a little placeholder, write something that comes after that, that I will then have, to, I know I will have to change. So why not just get it right the first time? And I know that's, that's just, that's the way that my brain works. And other people would not find it in any way conducive to the way that they work. But that, that's just the way that, that my brain works. So I do have regular points of the writing day when I am going away and looking up these things. I always write to music. Uh, I used to work in a cubicle farm. So if I was going to get any work done at all, there had to be headphones and music, because otherwise it was just too distracting. So that means that I can now write anywhere. You know, I've done it in you know, airport lounges, on planes, trains, a lot of it on trains, um, even the back of a taxi. As long as I can stick the headphones on and get the laptop out, I can write. Do you write every day of the week? Yeah, every day of the week, seven days a week. I used to joke that I took four days off a year. Uh, my birthday, my wife's birthday, our anniversary and Christmas Day. That's not even true. I think the only one that's likely not to have any writing on is Christmas Day. You mentioned... And even then, if my wife goes out to look after the horses, I will sneak through. So you really are writing whenever you can. But talk to me about the year then. You mentioned it just then. If we can just break break down the writing routine of the whole year, although it seems like you never stop. If you know that you need to hand your first draft in, and it will be a fairly refined first draft, as you just said. If you know that that needs to go in at a certain month, when will you start writing it? Where will you start having the ideas for what the story is going to be? Um, I'll start having the ideas and planning things out in the edit breaks. So when the manuscript I'm on at the moment is in with my publisher, that's when I am planning and thinking about the next book. So it really never stops? Never. It, no. Th- this is the first year um, I'm actually having a six-month sabbatical. Why is that? Because it's been seven days a week for 16 years. Was, is that your own force or maybe someone having a conversation with you saying, look, this is too much? Um, this, it, I'm just sort of getting to the point where I would really like to have a holiday 
we haven't been more than two consecutive days off for over seven years. So it's just, I, I, I am I am aware of the fact that I need to recharge some batteries and do something different for change. This work ethic of yours... Is terrible. Is it is it work ethic, do you think, through force that you're in a privileged position to be a writer, so let's make the most of it? Is it something perhaps that came from childhood? Is it... Is it just you love to tell stories? Um, well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, my mother and father uh, have uh, an offshore catering company. So when I was 18, I, I went and worked offshore. But I wasn't working for a company. I was working for family. So, you know, you don't can't slack. Because um, apart from anything else, if you, if you do go off in that kind of uh, environment and you're not pulling your weight and really doing everything that you can, then, you know, that 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 doesn't just reflect badly on the family. It reflects badly on the company because obviously it's a family company. And it also, you know, it, may, it it's it's not being conscientious or, or dedicated. And obviously you're just here to slack because you think you can get away with it. So I've always been very driven. The thing is, when I then came back from the rigs and, and, and went in to do something else. I had that, that work ethic had been ingrained in me. So I was stuck with that. And I've never really got rid of it. So it's always been work as as hard as you can. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Stuart in just a second. We'll talk more about that screenwriting style of getting a novel down, um, about 
how it has worked for him, whether it's still working and whether he'll carry on with it. Uh, very quickly, first, I want to say a massive thanks if you've taken the time to pledge to the show and help us out over on Patreon. Uh, I'm just in the middle of kind of putting together the schedule of when I'm interviewing certain authors, when that's happening, what weeks I'll be talking to them. And then I will send out messages to everyone who's uh, pledged to the show above a certain tier. I think it's $7 a month. For that, you get a bookmark, you get a badge. You also get to send me questions that I will ask to the authors that we speak to. And then I'll make little bonus episodes just full of the answers that you want. And they'll be sent out to those pledges. If you want to be part of it, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash writers routine and support the show. If you like what we're doing, if you want to carry on having writing tips flooding into your podcast feed every week or so, uh, if any of the almost 70 authors that we've spoken to in the last couple of years have given you some advice, which has really helped the way that you tell your stories. And if you want to say thank you for that, all you need to do is send us a couple of dollars every month. It doesn't need to be the full seven. It can be anything that you like. Uh, just fire it over and it really helps us get stuff done. It really helps with me traveling, all the expenses with that. Even something as simple as buying the author a cup of coffee uh, over our interview. It just really helps us get you an episode as regularly as we can. So if you'd like to help us carry on to help you, um, please do pledge uh, a couple of quid every month, just a few dollars over at Patreon patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back into it then with Stuart mcbride we're talking about his brand new uh, logan mccray book it's called all that's dead it's all about logan coming back to work after a year away and then he's thrown back into the crime world in the deepest darkest sense of the whole place uh, we talk about that new book in just a sec we also talk about the conversations that he has with himself whenever he's going anywhere he's constantly asking himself questions keeping the narrative going in his mind answering those questions he's having this brainstorm all the time we also talk more about that screenwriting process that we heard earlier on yeah and we pick things up talking about the new book and how he came up with the idea for it after a political disagreement which kind of makes sense for the way the 21st century is going for the whole world all over isn't it let's get back into it then with Stuart mcbride on this week's writer's routine I was at a small book festival and came across somebody who had just utterly stunned me um, because it was in the run-up to the 2016 uh, European referendum. And this person, who I had thought from the outset was a, a fairly sort of normal, sort of sensible person, started telling me within two minutes of meeting me just what a great thing it was, this opportunity to leave the EU and they would be voting out, and Enoch Powell had the right idea. And I, I had never heard anybody in Scotland come out with something like that. And I was really, really not happy. Uh, and my wife bundled me out of there uh, before I could go proper Vesuvius uh, on this person. And it, it started, it sort of started, started me thinking about the, the polarity that we have. Uh, because th this book is very much about the extremes involved uh, in political discourse today, particularly, uh, well, not 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 just around the, in the book. It's it's mostly about um, independence versus unionism um, for Scotland, but it it applies to pretty much every single camp. We have become so tribal and so divided. Um, so the the whole book came from that one 
Enoch Powell moment. Just how how can we have got to this point where where that is is something that people think is a good idea? That, that's quite a, a grand notion, though. You know, tribalism is it's a huge thing at the moment. How does then that whittle down to you for a plot for for Logan, this character that you've had for what fourteen books now? But what did you do to to, to get it down to the kernel that that could be a, a four hundred page long story? Um, well, it's again, it's all down to the the mind map, and just okay. Well, what would happen? If I put these two extremes, what would be the worst that can happen? And this is this is something, um, it's, it's a game I play a lot when I do um, writing workshops called Twist the Knife. Um, and and it's, it, it, it's, it's fairly simple. It's it, take, take an, an, an everyday situation and just kick off with, well, what's the worst that can happen? And I think a lot of crime writers have exactly that kind of mind because we get trained into it. So, you know, if, if, you're, if you're expecting to, to meet your other half in the supermarket um, in sort of 15 minutes and you're there 15 minutes and they're not. The, the, the thoughts start to, well, what, what's the worst that could happen? And, it's, it, and you go from, oh, well, you know, they're just a bit late to, you know, car crashes and abductions and all the rest of it. And that's, and that, that's the way a lot of our brains work. So twist the knife is just a way of formalising that. Well, you know, if you're if you're doing this, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, how do you make that worse? What's the worst that can happen? How do you get that to be worse? How do you get that to be worse? Until eventually it gets silly, and you just go back a couple of paces, and generally that will be a fairly fairly reasonable plot. How much of a, pl- a plotter are you? So you've got this, as I say, this idea of tribalism. You've gone a few rungs down the line of what's the worst that could happen. So you've got a fairly you know, you've got an idea of something that could be a story. How do you then transfer that into something that you're going to write? What do you know before you sit down and start tapping away? What does your plotting look like? It depends on the book. Um, a couple of books ago, I decided it might be fun to try writing screenplays to start with. Um, just just to change my process, because I'd been doing the same process for years and years and years. I want it to be fresh and different and interesting. So I started um, writing a screenplay. So I did, uh, the first one like that was Now We Are Dead. And I did it as six one-hour episodes. And I was very, very strict about it being one hour per episode. And it was all, pro- you know, in, in final draft, it was all done. So proper dialogue tag, proper formatting, proper camera not not instructions because you're not meant to do that, but things like you know if there's a montage shot that it would be montage da 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 da, and then having done the six episodes, I went back and adapted it into a novel. So it it was it was sort of like a, a very extreme version of plotting, in that I had all the dialogue, I had everything that happens. It was then to go in and put the narrative, and to to translate you know that montage shot. Yeah, okay, it's only six lines in a screenplay, but to actually write that out as narrative. It's then becomes an awful lot more involved, and of course, another big thing is that um, I write using a method called close associative discourse. So it's very much about sensory information, and not filtering it through the author, but just through the character. So while in a screenplay, if you want the car- the, the the viewer to know what's happening in somebody's head, they have to say and do or do something. Whereas, of course, when you get to the narrative, the internal monologue then takes over some of these functions, and it seems a bit strange and sparse if it doesn't. So I would sometimes have to unwrite the things that I had written in the screenplay 
in order to make them a more natural piece for a book. What did that screenplay uh, technique teach you about the way that you write, perhaps what you write well, what you need to work on as as you then moved into other novels where you weren't using that form of plotting? Well, I haven't actually stopped using that yet. So still for this one? So so, uh, All That's Dead was, uh, again... um, uh, a screenplay, and so was the Blood Road. Well, so I, I, I guess the reverse of that question then: How has it changed the way you write? How has it helped you, perhaps? Um, it's run its course now. Um, I don't want to do it for the next book uh, because I, I, I was starting to find knowing exactly where every single working day was going got to be a little bit constrictive because. Although there are there are small delights to be had in sort of a turn of phrase in the narrative, there's no longer that joy of going, oh, oh, I know. That thing that I wrote three chapters ago, I know where that goes now. Because all of that has already been done. There are notebooks full of sort of weird conversations with myself. I was doing this on the, on the plane on the way down today. Um, and it's, it's sort of... What if this happens? All, all, all done longhand. You know, what if this happens? And then, and then they do this, and then they do this, and then they do that. Actually, no, that's a bit crap. So no, that shouldn't happen. Maybe you're this bit. Oh, I like I quite like that bit though. Okay, well, maybe that bit. So if that happens, what then happens next? And it's just a big sort of. It's a conversation with myself, but it's a conversation with myself in writing. Before you started writing your screenplay for this, for all that's dead, did you know every single thing that would happen in the story? No. How much did you know? Quite often in the show, uh, writers will will talk to me. Uh, they will use the metaphor of of their story as a roadmap, almost. You know, you know where you're starting, you know where you're going to. It's what you're figuring out along the way that kind of makes the story. How, how much? How much did you know? Um, it would depend on the scene. Some scenes I would know exactly what I wanted to get out of it. Other times, I would basically strap in for the ride. What about story whole though? So with all that's dead, when you when you had this idea about, as I say, warring tribes, did you know how it would end? No, I didn't know how it would end at all. No. At what point did you figure that out? Um, about two thirds of the way in, but it didn't end the way that I thought it was going to. Uh, I completely changed where the ending was going to occur, and uh, and how it was going to pan out as well. Why was was that was that born through mind mapping or did it just what happened at the moment? Um, well, I, I used to be a project manager, so one of the things that um, I always used to try to ding into people was that it doesn't matter how meticulously you plan. It's the old, it's the old art of war thing. No plan survives first contact with the enemy, and there are times when I read a book and I can see the plot and the plan, and the the characters are being forced. To follow the plot rather than it coming naturally out of what they do. Um, so if I have planned from A to A to G, but I get to, to D, and actually it makes a lot more sense for this character to go this way rather than that way, then it means it needs to be replotted from that point back to where I want to go, rather than sort of drag them back, just replan. So, to, so it, it, it can be more organic and more honest to the characters rather than honest to the plot. You, you said that you're done with this screenwriting method of your storytelling mm. now. What do you want to move on to? What's your ideal way of storytelling in the, in the future? I don't know. I don't know. Um, 
there is a lot of me that thinks it would be fun just to sit down and mix stuff up. Um, but even then, though, I, I'm finding I'm filling a notebook as it is with the next thing that I want to write. And that's leading me, a, a, there's a lot more granularity of what happens in it than I was expecting it to have. So I've got scenes and I've got little bits of dialogue and action sequences. And I'm trying very hard at the moment to to summarise, because I, I, I really don't like summary narrative. In, in storytelling. I, I, I avoid it like the plague if I can. Um, I'm not a fan of exposition. I'm very much a, a show-don't-tell kind of person. Um, so I'm trying to force myself to use summary narrative in what I'm doing at the moment so that there is space to play when it comes to the writing. So it's not a case of, well, I've, got, I've, I've mapped this scene out blow by blow by blow by blow. No, I just... Let's just, let's just decide over the sort of thing that happens and then enjoy the process and enjoy the writing of it and that is it for this week's writer's routine thank you so much to Stuart McBride for sparing me some time in his Prosecco filled publication day he'd flown down with Scotland to do a whole bunch of stuff and I was really grateful that he could just carve out a little hour for me if you want to hear more about the book and all the Logan McRae series you can right now we've got links to the whole thing over at writersroutine.com while you're there, it's one of the best places to get in touch with the show. If you want to say hello, let me know what you think. Uh, maybe give some suggestions for authors that you want to hear from. I've had quite a few of those in recently. If you have sent me a message and maybe I've not got back to it, I have read it, I promise, and I'm working on the author that you have suggested to me. Normally I do message back, though. I think maybe I'm over-glamorising how busy I am. Anyway, get in touch with me. Click the contact page over at writersroutine.com. Uh, also, if you want to get in touch, you can do that by following us over on Twitter. It is at writerspod there. And we're also writersroutine over on Instagram. And if you do get a little second in your day, a little gap uh, while you're writing, maybe, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts if that's how you are listening to the show, because it really helps more people find the help that they need on the authors that we chat to here at Writers Routine. Uh, and, and if you want to help us, carry on helping you uh, just pledge a couple of dollars a month please you can get yourself a little badge a bookmark you can even ask me questions to ask authors on your behalf uh, do that over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine next week we are chatting to the author of one of the summer's hottest thrillers uh, phoebe Locke will be on the show chatting all about the july girls so if you love your crime you love your murder you love your mystery you love your psychological thrillers that are a little bit different to all the others make sure you're here next week on writers routine i will see you then bye Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.